Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month our guest is Dominique Kelly. Dominique is a dancer and choreographer as well as an educator who has worked with many well-known entertainers around the world in numerous capacities. He came to our attention when he was featured in the May 2019 issue of the American Theatre Magazine's Roll Call as a theatre worker we should know about. And they were right. His list of credits is impressive and extensive, and his talents seem to know only the bounds of his imagination. We caught up with him a while back and had a remarkable conversation, as you are about to hear. When did you first know that dance was where you wanted to go? Yeah, the the thing is, this year I'm celebrating my 25th anniversary in the business officially. Hey, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. It's a blessing just to be able to keep doing it after all these years, physically, mentally, spiritually, and financially. But uh, more importantly, um, when I first found out, see, I played t-ball, I played basketball. I was a super active child, not only in sports, but in science. And I went to the museum every Saturday. I had microscopes and telescopes. So it was never, I was never one of those stay inside video game children. No offense, but I was just never one of those. Um, and I have um, a short attention span, so I like to master things quickly. So my mother noticed that, and, I, and she's a, uh, she is a retired teacher. So she brought me along to her elementary school where she was teaching music, and there was a dance company performing. And it was a local dance company. It wasn't you know anything absolutely illustrious, but it was great. And she said that was the first time I stood still for an hour without moving. Like at all. Wow. At all. And then she said from that moment she knew. Um, Then she brought me to a dance class and it was around May or June. I went in my penny loafers and my homemade unitard and I was like, all right, I'm about to kill this. (laughs) And And I went in and it was the end of the year in recital time. So all the young ladies in there had their tutus and they were getting ready for their recital. They knew all the terminology and knew all the steps. I was not having it. I cried. I was like, I'm not ready. This is not for me because I'm one of those people that I like to do research on my own and I like to know things. So if I'm in front of a group that everybody knows something and I don't, I'm not really the best at that. I know exactly how you feel. So I was like, yeah, woman, I'm done. I want no parts of this. And then literally she told me a couple months later, I came up to her and I was like, mom, I'm ready to do it again. And from then on, I started my first dance class and hasn't, I haven't stopped since then. And that was at nine years old. Nine. Okay. I've got it written down here that you headlined the European tour of black and blue and you were only 15 when you joined the national tour of bringing the noise, bringing the funk. So you obviously worked really hard at this. Really hard. Yeah, I did Black and Blue at 12. And um, it was a role originated by Savion Glover. And um, basically, it was one of the most life changing experiences. It was uh, my first time going to Europe at 12. And, you know, Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk was a national tour. So I got to travel the country. Right. And there is nothing like it. And I was fortunate that my father literally got laid off from his job a week before I got my first one. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to say good so, luck on that one, but, you know, it's synchronicity. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was on the road with me for five years traveling, you know, going back and forth to home and 
tutoring me because I was homeschooled for five years. So it was one of those life-changing moments because, again, I love learning. I didn't necessarily enjoy school. Gotcha. And I did well in school. It was just the other people between, you know, of course, the bullying mm. and and dealing with other people's learning schedules. I was like, I like to learn how I learn. And it was the best of both worlds. I got to perform. I got to travel the, the world and the country. And I got to learn at my own speed. Wonderful. How did getting such a widespread view of the rest of the world, the United States and touring Europe, for someone that young, which is not a common experience, how, in your estimation, how did that shape you? How did that change you? Well, first of all, it opened me up to more ideas than I would have had because I'm from Connecticut and it's not necessarily extra conservative, but it's not, it wasn't the most extremely liberal place. The good thing is it's a city, it's diverse, multicultural, it has everything. It really does. It's gorgeous. It's a suburb of New York and Massachusetts. So we get a lot going through there, but it's something different about being in Amsterdam for a month or being in Switzerland or being in Paris, France, or being in Germany that just opened my eyes to a new point of view. For example, um, just the food, the culture, going somewhere as an American and not being able to really learn a language or understand a language that quickly makes me more empathetic for people who come to America and don't necessarily know the language and have to make it around. I think it's become it's made me a more empathetic, artistic and open person, because, of course, when it comes to the body and arts and um, rest and nudity and all those other concepts, Europe is leading the way in a lot of ways. I mean, besides Scandinavia. So right, in right. that aspect, I mean, I got to see the Deutsches Museum. I got to see the Eiffel Tower. I saw, you know, um, Berlin Wall, like where it came down. I went to Anne Frank's house. And there's nothing like reading the book about Anne Frank and then going to the actual Anne Frank house. I went to concentration camps. I went to African-American history museums. I went to zoos all across the country and the world. And there's no knowledge that can, there's no book that can um, explain what you see right in front of you because right. it's very tactile. It's visual. Like yeah. you yeah. can, you can see it. Like I went to the Louvre when I was 13. You know what I mean? It's just, it's different things like that where it's like, oh, I get it. Now you have to be there to experience it. I had the same experience the first time I went to Europe. And I'd been reading about places and, and people most of my life about mm -hmm. composers and artists, but they were all, you know, they were just stick figures in my mind. And then all of a sudden, once I'm in the actual place where these things happen, it takes on a whole new reality. It's like, oh my God, this stuff is real. You're in the room where it happens. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I feel in awe of many of these things that, you know, up, up until now, were just intellectual subjects. Exactly. Once you get back to the United States or once you, once you start dealing or you continue to deal with people that you've grown up with in your own society, how was that? I mean, did you, did you feel, I don't know, a little more educated than the rest? Or did you feel different? Did you feel out of place having all this, I don't know, all, I guess a lot of knowledge that many of your peers didn't have? Well, this was the thing. Um, when I did Black and Blue, I was 12, and the next age was 19, and it went up to 74. So 
Um, I was used to being the young kid. Even when I did noise funk, there was one other gentleman who was my age, but I was used to being the young one. So I would just sit there and absorb information. So um, after I did Wild Women Blues, which was a, a show that I helped to choreograph when I was 16 that starred Linda Hopkins, um, I literally said, you know what? I need a break. I need a brain break. I don't want to keep doing these tap shows like it's great being home, but I want to kind of be, quote unquote, normal for for a year. And my mother at that time was one of the founders of a charter high school in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Bridge Academy. So I went there and it was easy um, just for the fact that I've already been homeschooled and a lot of things that people were learning, I was like, Oh, I already know all about that. Cause I actually went to that place. <laughs> um, so in, in, in hindsight, that was a nice, um, acclimation back to what it feels like to be in a, a classroom setting. Um, of course it was a very small charter school. There was only 35 people who graduated and I was valedictorian, which, you know, which is, is, is great, but... Um, That's a nice honor. Oh, it was an amazing honor. Uh, but it was more of like a chill year for me, even though, you know, my brain was working, but I didn't necessarily get to learn at my own pace. It was more socialization. But it was great because um, I did go to college. I went to UConn, and I got a partial scholarship for animal science. So while I was in high school, I was working at the zoo in Connecticut. So it was a nice trade-off. Like I, I was still doing both. Yeah. Um, yeah. What made it hard for me was coming back and socializing with friends that wanted to go to the mall to hang out. And I didn't understand why people did that. <laughs> I was like, uh, if we're not buying things, why are we going? Yeah. You know, or little things like let's go joyriding. It's like, where, why, why are we just going around town? Can we, to a restaurant, can we do something? So, you know, in times like that, you have to realize, uh, okay, I had different experiences. It it wasn't anything that threw me in any way, but it, I just had to remember like, oh, I'm just blessed to have these experiences that I had. And now it's time to have new ones. Yeah. It sounds like you were extremely blessed to have such good support too. Not a lot of kids I, get that. Great support. And um, as I talk to friends now, um, it's hard for me to empathize with not having support because I've always had support. Like even when I was nine years old, I remember uh, my mother tells me this all the time. I was in the mirror and I was grinding and she looked over at me like, what are you doing? And she was like, and I told my mother, I said, mom, I'm going to be a stripper. And she <laughs> said, she said, baby, you be the best stripper you can be. You make me proud. Oh, kudos to your mom. That's wonderful. Same thing with my father. My father was always like, if you can dream it, just do it. I have your back. So I always had supportive friends and family. Um, even the bullies who used to give me grief in elementary school, now they're on my Facebook page congratulating me. So that just shows it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Once uh, once you stick with it and once you prove it, things do tend to work themselves. That's great. That's wonderful. Thank you. I have a technical question for you. Sure. Because, all right. I'm not a dancer. I'm not a choreographer. I took two years of ballet. I was miserable at it. When I was eight years old, I wanted to be Gene Kelly, but mm -hmm. you know, I've got absolutely no rhythm whatsoever. So I went somewhere else, but I notice in your credits that you worked on La La Land as a tap Foley. Foley is, uh, basically, you know, the golden age of movie musicals, you know, they wore regular shoes and after they went back and added the tap sounds. 
So I was Ryan Gosling's tap sound. I didn't sound. know that. Mm-hmm. He did tap. But um, I went back and I made sure that everything was spot on and clean. I remember I was doing a movie in Toronto at that time, and I got flown back to L.A. for like a day or two to do it. And it was a great experience. It's my version of video games because I'm so detail-oriented and I want I want to get it perfect. And I just want to shout out Mandy Moore, who choreographed that. It was absolutely amazing, and she's a near and dear friend. And, um, yeah, it was great. I had tap shoes and regular shoes. And as I'm watching, I'm trying to literally do every single step that he did without necessarily knowing all of them. So, yeah, it's a great challenge. I've done it for a couple of different projects, and it's one of my favorite things to do. That's great. Um, it's a whole new world. You don't have to worry about hair or makeup. You literally <laughs> just go in. It's just like, you know, when they do sound effects, like a gunshot or anything, and there's somebody back there making the sounds. That's the same thing I'm doing with my feet. Cool. That sounds like a good job. It's a great job. <laughs> uh, all right. I, th this is probably a, a no-brainer question. I'm sure it is because f just from talking to you in this short time, I get – the idea that you are a person who doesn't like to wait for anybody else. You like to have your own judgment on things and you probably like to do things mostly by yourself. So it doesn't seem odd to me that you would go from dancing into choreography. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like making that transition, designing dance steps? That's a world I have absolutely no knowledge of whatsoever. I mean, I've directed shows and things like that, told people to move here, do that, do the other thing. But to do, you know, in dance, that's a whole different language. It is a completely different language. Um, there's pros and cons. Um, the hard part is uh, everybody thinks they're a choreographer until you actually have to do it. Um, because, you know, said about directors, too, but I didn't say very, that. very true. You know, like, I love everybody in every facet of the business, but everybody does think they're a choreographer or a director until you really have to do it. Um, yeah. The hard thing is, like, whether it's for musical theater or movie or TV, um, we are technically writers or screenwriters, and uh, we paint with our words. Uh, as people paint with their words, we do it with movement. You um, use the phrase, coloring with steps. Yes. Uh, basically... What it is, um, a lot of times in a script, they go and then they dance or dance number or musical number, but it's never charted out. That's our job to do, um, which gets tedious at times and it gets stressful. But at the end of the day, pushing the story along with movement is something like no other. Uh, just for the fact. And then if you add tap or any kind of body percussion, you have doubled the the stimulation. Like I can see it with my eyes. I can see the story pushed along. They don't have to say any words. They don't have to sing any songs. And the good thing is, for example, in Oklahoma, um, when I choreographed that for the Denver center, there's a whole dream ballet at the end of the first act. So it was great to literally just have 11 or 12 minutes of full dance to push the story ahead. And I'm such an adamant storyteller in in the most literal sense, when it comes to anything, I feel like we all are bonded by our stories and our histories. And at the end of the day, sometimes we can't speak the same language. We don't hear the same songs or the same pitches. But if you see movement that's telling a story, that can all gel us together.
Um, now, the, the hard thing about being a choreographer is um, inspiration. And sometimes, you know, working with dancers are great, but dancers don't necessarily need a story. They're all about get it done and make it look beautiful. Now, actors are really great, too, with this. Sometimes they don't have the movement quality. So I love that challenge. I've always loved puzzles and science and math. So my favorite is trying to get the best out of everybody. And I say I go into a project with a huge potato, like a russet potato. And if I get back one beautifully crafted French fry, then I've done my job. I like that analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, you work with you work with dancers, professional dancers. Um, what's what's it like working with non dancers? Have you have you done that? Oh yes, a, a lot. Um, I assisted Cat Burns on Crazy Ex Girlfriend, and there was a lot of actors, you know, and they had musical theater training, but not necessarily dancer dancers. And the next show that I'm doing at the Denver Center is a play called Indecent. And it's not a dance musical by any means. It's more acting and a play. That's um, Paul I love, play? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy working with actors because it has to make sense. And I'm one who deals with logic as far as fantasy. I'm like, for example, I'm one of those people that I'll read a nonfiction book or watch a documentary before I'll watch something fantasy driven. So um, the way my brain works when it works with actors the story has to make sense. And I, I love that aspect of it. Even if it's something, you know, esoteric or, or a theory or a theme, it still has to land for them. And if it lands for them, it's probably going to land for the audience. You're obviously, from the research I've done, obviously a name in the business. I mean, you've worked with a lot of big names. Mariah Carey, James Corden, Pink, Janet Jackson, Gwen Stefani. Mm -hmm. um, What's it like working in that kind of a rarefied atmosphere with, with actors or performers who have the power to make their own ideas happen because they are the star? Again, there's pros and cons. I enjoy it because, uh, for example, I guess I'm being known as the musical theater guy on the West Coast. So when I was approached by Janet's camp, they wanted something musical theatery or something funky and almost fossy like you know so it was great to create for that or like for example i helped to choreograph for mariah carey's christmas tour a couple of times and um they there was a tap performance in there i choreographed there was um a technical piece like ballet contemporary so i think it's great because i get to use all the crayons in my box whenever we say musical theater because nobody can really define what musical theater is. If you compare it to West Side Story and then you compare it to Hamilton, or if you compare Hades Town and then you compare it to um, 42nd Street, it's like, where where do we lie in musical theater? You, you really can't say like a genre of dance or anything like that. So I love when I'm thought of as a musical theater guy on the West who can do different genres in different media, because then it allows me to use the full extent of my abilities. Gotcha. For example, um, I recently just did something for Pink for her tour, and it's like a Lindy number, and it's very musical theatery, but you know, of course, like grounded in reality, because it's more Lindy and swing and. They bring out these trumpets at the end. And um, it's one of those things where it's like, I love that 
people come to me because they're like, we want the real deal and we want a young, fresh spin on it. So it's been a pleasure getting to do that for the different artists, too, because at the end of the day, everybody wants something fun and a little different instead of something angsty and just hip hop driven all the time. So I like that I'm being asked to intrude and invade those spaces and bring a little joy and some musical theater to other people. Nice. You know, even to people and to audiences who don't even know they like musical theater. Like, for example, I was um, Taylor Swift's dance captain from 2011 to 2012 on tour. And um, she went to see Wicked as her inspiration for the tour. And Susan Hilferty happened to do the costumes. And since I did Wicked years ago, you know, reconnecting with Susan Hilferty was great. But then it just showed me, I was like, you see, musical theater inspiration is pervasive and everywhere. It's just that we don't really know. I mean, for example, look at Beyonce doing Fosse-inspired stuff. Look at J-Lo doing Busby Berkeley. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Golden Age film. It's just like it's pervasive everywhere. It's just people don't know where it comes from. So it's been nice to put a younger face on classic musical theater moves and to bring different faces and different colors and different body types. Like, for example, I choreographed uh, Singing in the Rain back at um, Zach Theater, and it was great to not even do colorblind casting, but diverse casting. Like, what would it seem like? Um, you know, for an interracial relationship at that time. And it was interesting because our donors asked, how does it feel to update the musical? And I said, it's not updated. It's the same time period. It's the same script. The only thing that's different is it's a little more colorful. So it's been nice to introduce colorful visions in the way that I see it to other people. What was the audience reaction to that change? They didn't even think about it. I mean, of course, the script takes on a different tone and words mean different things. Like it's like, OK, I'll be watching from the balcony or you know what I mean? Like that means something at that time period, because our lead, our lead um, male was uh, Caucasian and our lead female was black. She was African-American. Right. So, you know, that the, the script, if you go through the script of Singing in the Rain you can almost hear different tones and you, you see different things, especially with, you know, the Me Too movement and just with our 2019 eyes going back mm -hmm. and looking at the script. It just it just paints a different picture. So it's great to do that. It's it's nice to amplify um, the text to see, like, is this still relevant or not? And to see how our beings and our, our, the ways of life have changed. I mean, they've changed know? a lot, and in some ways they haven't changed nearly enough. It's Exactly. I find going back to things that I remember from my childhood, you know, old movies, movies that were old when I was a kid, or movies that came out when I was a kid, um, that I had no perspective on whatsoever. To me, it was just entertainment, and I swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. Yes. And I look back at it now, and... I miss half of whatever it is I'm watching because now I'm thinking about the differences between then and now and what yes. we took for granted back then and the way we had the world ordered at that particular point in many ways is shocking and, you know, and, and horrific and how could we have done that? And so it's interesting to, I guess, bring a classic back and... Mm -hmm. bring it into modern light to see how it works. 
Well, to piggyback off of that, I don't think so much that it's anything that we took for granted. We were just in a privileged place, so we didn't have to experience or see it or know about it. Because there's certain communities that, for example, you know, um, West Side Story, if you go back and look at that, there's certain parts of it that are a little sexual assaulty. You know, there's certain parts of it that are a little stereotypical, you know, Um, there. Like if you go back and look at Carousel, go back and look at a lot of different musicals or the way women are portrayed or perceived. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's anything we took for granted. It's just that um, us identifying in the male gender, we didn't necessarily see from a woman's point of view. Or, for example, um, you know, certain other musicals we didn't see from a different um, ethnic point of view. So I I like I know they rewrote Greece to take out a lot of the improper sexual connotations yeah yeah i mean low-key if you go back and see sing uh singing in the rain there's some things that are in there that i'm like mm, that's a little it's a little interesting that's yeah. it's very interesting it's just the times and again it's not that we all took it for granted it's just like a community dealt with it while everybody else thought it was nothing right when you're at home and you've got the day off, or if you have a day off, it sounds like you don't have a day off, but if you had a day off Mm -hmm. and you were in your studio and there was nobody there, okay, and Mm -hmm. you just wanted to dance, what music would you put on and what kind of dance would you do? That's funny because usually when I have a day off, I am not dancing at all. (laughs) Okay, so much for that question. No, but I will answer the question. I would totally answer the question. Um, if I had music, it's probably Snarky Puppy for the most part. I need something without words, something that changes, um, whether it's time signatures. I like percussion. I love punches. Um, I love unpredictability. So most times it's I'm going through the Snarky Puppy catalog. And the dance form that I'm doing is whatever fits the music. It could be salsa. It could be tap. It could be hip hop. It could be ballet. It could be jazz. It could be contemporary. It can be whatever comes out of my body at that one point in time. Okay. After a good warm up, because I'm getting older, so I can't just necessarily jump in the studio like I used to. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> getting out of it's bed real. some days is, is, you know. It's real. Yes. It, <laughs> real is a good way of putting it. We've talked about working with people, real live animated flesh and blood people, um, but you've done animation choreography, and I I have to say this just to get this on tape, you've choreographed Smurfs. I find that just so darling and adorable, I can't get over it. Choreographing animation, I guess when you're in a rehearsal room with people and you're saying, no, 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 it's kick, turn, kick, turn, grind your tape. And you work mm-hmm. that out. Um, excuse my ignorance. But no, um, working with animation, how does that happen? How do you get from concept to working with, I guess, the animators or the director to making this thing happen on screen? Well, what I didn't realize um, between that one and also adding on to that, I helped to choreograph for Princess and the Frog because I played the villain, Dr. Facilier. What you don't realize are cartoons never stop moving, ever. So that increases your workload and the volume of movement that has to happen. Also, just the sheer, like I am 6'1", 
Smurfs are tiny. So it's mm. just in like their body proportions are totally different than ours. So I worked on that with uh, Keith Young, who was the principal choreographer on that and just figuring out what we could do um, with the bodies and the body proportions. Not only that, thank God that um, I eventually graduated college with a mass media degree. So I knew all about nonverbal communication. So that definitely helps when it comes with cartooning and animation, because first and foremost, again, you have to tell the story. You're like, why would the character move that way? Um, what are their physical limitations? How do they show joy? How do they show pain? Um, and just the normal ways, like whenever we see a Disney movie, you can always tell besides just facial characteristics how the um, characters are feeling. So it's a combo of all of those things put together. And then, of course, you want to put in some great tricks. You want to put in some great movement. You want to put in things that are going to wow the audience and be dynamic. But um, it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of know-how and trial and error because there's a lot of options. There's always many options because also um, with Smurfs, that was more CGI. Um, Princess and the Frog, they drew it. So I was the video reference. So I had to do all those things in real life. So it's just trying to figure out how far we're taking the character. Is the character going to be able to fly or does the character tap dance on a table? Like, which one are we doing? So um, it was a great challenge, but I look forward to doing that more and more because it's it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, also to throw it in there, not to like toot my own horn, but I was one of the um, people who played Ted in Ted 2. And that was that was another experience because, again, I'm 6'1", and Ted is super tiny and yeah. is a teddy bear. So the way my brain works, especially with science and proportions and math, it was great to try to figure out what movement works and what movement doesn't work, you know, even though I was just tumbling, but it's still figuring out for the specifics of the character and all that other stuff, what will work and not work. And of course, working with the animators because they have a totally different workload in trying to make it work. So I love that collaborative process. It occurred to me that working with regular people, you've got a limitation. Working with dancers, you've got a physical limitation on what you can ask them to do. Yes. And with animation, literally anything is possible. So... Your creative process, your thinking process, when you're in, like you said, if are, is, are they going to fly or are they going to tap dance on the table? Well, let's say this is one of those things where they can fly or they can do something that human beings cannot do. How does your thinking wrap around that? I think that's when you just use your imagination or you get inspired. Uh, for example, it's like, does he fly like a hummingbird? Does he fly like an eagle? Does he fly like something underwater. You know what I mean? I think what mm -hmm. helps is you ground yourself in some concept and use some inspiration and then go from there. Because for example, if I asked you to pick a house in the United States that you want to live in, that seems daunting. But if I told you to pick a house in a specific neighborhood in Manhattan on the Upper East Side, then you would have a little more of clarity and focus. So when it comes to those things with animation, with figuring out what um, the cartoon or the character does, I think it helps to get some specificity in your brain so you're not just grasping at air trying to figure out what happens. But then also leaving enough room for your imagination to run wild because most times where you start off is not where you end. That's true a lot of times.
a lot of times with everything. Like yeah. where you think you're going to be is not necessarily where you end up. And then that's where the beauty of the journey and the process begins. You got to follow the process. Yeah, it's one of life's joys is, in, is those surprises. Like, how did I get here? Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You wrote that you want to bring movement and dance artistry to every facet of the entertainment industry. Yes. That's, A, first of all, a very huge goal to go after, but and no doubt admirable. But you're in sports, working with the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers. Work, mm-hmm. how, does, how does that happen? And what's your function there? Well, um, bringing it back, fresh out of college, I joined the WNBA New York Liberty basketball team and soon thereafter started choreographing for them. And the director liked my work, so she brought me on for the Knicks. And then from the Knicks came the Nets, Brooklyn Nets, and then Boston Celtics, and then the San Diego Chargers, well, LA Chargers now. And, um, you know, 49ers and all these other people. Um, basically, I choreograph the dancers and the cheerleaders a lot of times, whether it's for um, a timeout or for halftime or any of those shows. So it's bringing that uh, to the forefront. And it's not necessarily just women shaking their their bodies for men and, and gays. It, I, I love strong movement. And I love athletic movement and I like um, showing versatility because at the end of the day, women don't move for men. Women move for themselves and hopefully to inspire other women and men in the audience who want to be dancers. Because at the end of the day, no one group of people goes to a sporting event, people from all walks of life. Um, What also helps, too, is I choreograph for the Pro Bowl which is like the all-star game, but for football. And um, we, the company E2K selects one lady from each um, sports team who are on the cheerleading squad or dance team or whatever they call it. And um, they all come together, whether it's Hawaii or Florida or wherever they're having the all-star game, and perform dances. So it's great to be able to flex that muscle because the good thing is I compare it to like, I call it my cigarette. You don't really have to tell a story. You just do formations and great flashy moves to fun music. And I think that's a good thing to do because not everything can be so serious in life or death all the time. Like for example, in musical theater, you really have to plan it out for months. You have to make sure everything makes sense. The story arc, the arc of the show dynamics, how it works with the costume with NBA and NFL. The good thing is you can just have fun and dance and, you know, tumble and do floor work and kicks and shimmies and all that other fun stuff. And um, to basically show show how strong dancers can be on the court, too. In, in one sense, I mean, to me, as a, a, a spectator who mm-hmm. really knows nothing about the business that, w- that we're talking about, um, but works in other artistic avenues, uh, my question is especially for something like that, you could just make it a big, glitzy number, all right? Mm-hmm. Or work, working in a show like Oklahoma, working in a show like uh, um, uh, Bring in the Funk, mm-hmm. you could do almost anything you want. But it sounds to me like a large part of what you do is to maintain a level of physical integrity, conceptual integrity. 
But what gets hard is a lot of times I am a contributing choreographer. So I give the moves, the intention, the staging, and then what people do with it is their business after I've been paid. So for example, um, with a lot of the recording artists I work with or NBA and NFL, I give over what I want it to be. And sometimes at the end of the day, that's not what it looks like. So I've had to grapple with being an artist and also being, being a businessman and just letting it go and being like, it was my gift to give. And that's how they perceive the gift. And that's, they made it work for them. Um, for example, with NBA and NFL, again, you know, it's not like we're using a lot of props. It's not like we're using a lot of different things. You have like a minute to a minute and a half to show what you've got, as opposed to a show, which is, you know, anywhere from an hour 45 to three hours to show what you've got. So, for example, it's like if we did an interview over the course of a year, like a documentary or an interview for an hour, you got to get in everything you can in that hour. So that's what I compare it to. That's back to the potato. It's like I bring in a potato. If you can give me a nice French fry at the end, then I'm good. And plus, my favorite food is French fries. So that comes in a lot because, you know, mm. going around the world and around the country, you can find French fries everywhere. Everywhere. You mentioned percussion work earlier, and yes. it does not surprise me that you would create your own soundtracks or experiment with the way your body hits the floor, the way your arms move, the way you use objects to create beats and sounds and patterns. How is that working? Well, great. Uh, when I was in uh, elementary school, I was in the band. And of course, I played the snare drum. No surprise. So um, just and then uh, also being on step teams when I was younger and in college. And it's just it's also part of the culture. Like being African-American, it's already a call and response culture. We clap on the two and the four. We're going to yell back at you, even in church. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a very lively, percussive, celebratory culture. So I kind of use that in a lot of what I do. For example, um, I look back and I'm like, the first five years of my career were tab jobs. You know, and not only tab jobs, African-American shows. So that has greatly shaped my outlook on bringing percussion and tap to everywhere, like not only to movies and film and musical theater, but just like everyday life. Like, why not make some sound? I mean, at the end of the day, when you hear somebody walking in regular shoes or heels down the street, that's keeping time. Yeah. Whether, yeah. whether you're on the, you know, on a bridge driving in your car and you hear the ridges at the same speed, that's keeping time. Like we hear music everywhere. It's just we block it out. Like when, whether you're on the train, whether you're, you know, you hear raindrops, you hear percussion all the time. It's just it's what you choose to let in. What you were just talking about brought up a concept, and that is the concept of oral patterns, A-U-R-A-L patterns and mm -hmm. physical patterns that affect our nervous system. And it seems the more you think about it, there are hundreds of those in yes. our lives Heartbeats. All around us. Yes. Everything from heartbeats to breathing. Yes. Blinking, all of that. I mean, it seems like we're all going along with rhythms and patterns, even if we don't pay attention to it more than we think. Exactly. See, you had an epiphany. 
that's that's my outlook. Um, and what I like to do too is um, visual patterns because uh, not everybody is hearing well uh, people we have a, a large percentage a percentage of our community who are hearing impaired so at the end of the day if it doesn't make sense to them and they can't feel the beat then you have to make your art for everybody or as many people like for example doing uh noise funk when i was younger we would have um performances for the hearing impaired and to see those people bringing balloons so they could feel the rhythm and then having you know people who do asl on the sign on the side really getting into it made me go like oh this needs to be for everybody even if you can't hear what i'm doing you need to be able to see the beat you have to be able to feel the beat um and for example, one of my mentors, his sister was hearing impaired. So what he would do is shut off all the music and watch his work back. And if it didn't make sense, if you couldn't hear it, then it didn't, it, it didn't work for him. So I, I employ that practice also. You've had a long and successful up until now, and I'm sure there's going to be much more of it, um, professional journey. Mm -hmm. What's been Thank the hardest part of that for you? The hardest part um, is knowing that I can do my best and do my, do like work hard, but it still will not get me into certain doors and into certain venues. Um, just by me being who I am, just by the, the work that I create or just the process and, and, and timing. Um, I hope to get to choreograph a show on Broadway um, what's been unfortunate is in the past, even recently, I've been told that, um, my work does not fit in with musical theater, um, because people only want to see traditional musical theater to which I brought up noise funk and wicked and Hamilton and Hades town and all these other musicals. But they say, I mean, of course, to, to that, I had to say, I apologize for your, your Eurocentric and myopic view of musical theater, but I reject that notion. I'm just as and, and that goes back to like my um, basically statement, my statement sentence, which is like, I want to bring diverse voices to the masses um, and not necessarily just people of colors, voices and bodies, but creatively like what that seems like having more people of color or people from marginalized groups or more women more people who are um not able-bodied or gender non-conforming on the other side to tell those stories and to to inherently be themselves because there's so many stories out there mm -hmm. that are waiting to be told and there's so many different points of view and at the end of the day name the last um african-american choreographer who was nominated for a choreography Tony on Broadway. Exactly. If it's not Bill T. Jones, I'm guessing for like Spring Awakening. Yeah. I mean, or Savion Glover, for example, like he, he won, but it's like, it's been so long that, um, I mean, thank God for Camille Brown, who's doing some great stuff and getting some some notoriety and some credit, but we still have a, a ways to go in the Broadway community yeah. about yeah. Um, whose stories are being told and shared and who's being behind the scenes to, you know, 
push those stories forward. So that's that's one thing that is like, okay, I'm just going to have to stay true to myself. And also, you know, I love creating black art and doing black excellence. But that's not the only thing I do. And it's great for other people to see that, for example, choreographing Indecent. I think it's going to be a great challenge, um, not for not because of the story or the movement or the cultural. It's just more of having people see me as me as opposed to, oh, this black guy choreographed this Jewish play. You know, so and that's why my name kind of helps. I have to thank my mother for that because I hated it growing up because I was like, it's such a girly name. Everybody thought I was an Irish girl when they called my name until I stood up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm Dominique Kelly. So a lot of times it's unfortunate that I don't put my headshot in a lot of places. And I just like to let my work speak for itself until you see what I look like. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think but that does thing- speak for itself. Obviously, up until now, you've had a number of successes, and they are not small successes. You seem like you're doing well, and that's obviously because of your hard work and the fact that you have listened to yourself and what is true, um, true to your Thank nature. You. Thank you. But to backtrack a little bit to what you were just talking about, this whole Broadway thing, I think Broadway is shooting itself in the foot, and it is has gotten itself to a point where only a certain number of people can actually attend Broadway, whether it's... Yeah, it's becoming elitist. Oh, becoming. I think it's been elitist forever. I mean, I can't afford tickets. Yeah, I can't either. All right, so you've, you've limited your audience to those who can afford the tickets, which means you've got to put a certain kind of guaranteed, because that's what the backers want, butts and seats... Yeah. Guaranteed spectacle. Okay. To give them, quote, their money's worth. And, you know, Indecent was on Broadway for what, a month, two months, something like that? Not very long. Yeah. It was up, it was down. It's like that with so many other plays, as you said, from people with varying points of view, from varying histories, from different histories, from different things to say that. That's what art really is. So, you know, until Broadway restructures itself from the ground up. um, But the thing is, there's so much money to be made. And that's the hard thing, too, Um, because, you know, we understand it's like money is not necessarily the root of all evil. Money is freedom. Money is power, but money is also freedom. So I cannot wait for the opportunity for somebody to want to hear what I have to say or want to see or want to collaborate or any of those things. And until that moment happens, I put my head down and do the work and, you know, try to help educate myself and other people about what this is and what this life is and being a human and humanity and talking about the things that are hard to talk about and making work that makes people smile and think. And I know it sounds very pageanty, but it really comes from a true place. You have know, to be true to yourself and you have to be true to your ideals and you have to do what you were born to do. What makes you live? Yeah. Yes. And I remember years ago, certain agents and managers would go like, well, you have to choose one thing. 
and just do that well and then hope that you get your foot in the door and then you can just switch it up on people. And I was like, why not just live to the fullest and do everything that I want to do now? And that's why I'm with the agency I'm with now, because they said, we support you in everything that you want to do. Um, and again, it's, it's just been great support and especially people like you, um, with, you know, the podcasts and the interviews and everything like that. And, and, you know, I understand a lot of times we're in an echo chamber, mm-hmm, but yeah. these, these conversations do help to mobilize but we're and talking. to get someone aboard. Exactly. Exactly. And that's you know, the idea behind this whole podcast is to get people to talk about their work so other people can hear it. And we realize we are a community. Yes. We are a community and we, you know, we fall short. Sometimes we have our little infights and this group doesn't agree with that group. But at the end of the day, we're a community and we have a story to tell and we have lives to change. Mm -hmm. So I just hope people remember that and then move forward with that. Like the money will come. It will. But until then, keep telling your story to the best of your ability. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yep. Okay. What do you got coming up in the near future and how can all of my thousands of listeners find out more about you? Well, um, some things that I have coming up, um, like right now I'm just heavily preparing for indecent because I want it to be good. I want everything I touch to be well thought out and good. So I'm going to start getting into inspiration mode for that and some other projects. I hate to be this person, but like under NDA, you can't really talk about them yet. But when I do, um, I usually post about it. So you can go to my website, www.domkelly.com, D-O-M-K-E-L-L-E-Y.com or Instagram, which is Dom Kelly. Basically, if you look on any social media platform, I'm pretty much known as Dom Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y. So that's the the place to tune in and see what's going on. Yeah. And I love talking to people. I love DMS, like people sliding into my DMS about work. That's always good. And, um, just having a conversation and just reaching people and being inspired and, and inspiring others. So yeah, I'm an open book. So if anybody wants to stay tuned and come along for the ride, I invite all. Sounds good. I'll be, I'll be looking out for you in the future. Definitely. Thank Thank you you so much for being here. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It's been a real treat, Dominic. Thank you. I appreciate you. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 